Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for one of my favorite topics. Today, we welcome Madhavan Ramanujam to discuss monetization strategy and determining early what customers really value. Madhavan gave an exceptional talk at the first round CEO summit, and ever since, I've been hoping to have an opportunity to interview him here on the program. He is also author of the popular book, Monetizing Innovation. And Bill Gurley has said that Madhavan is to monetization strategy what Bob Marley is to reggae music. In today's episode, we discuss the common innovation missteps made by entrepreneurs, the four types of innovation fails, the three rules for monetizing new products, how to determine what to price a product, how to choose a business model, building flexibility into the pricing strategy, applying this methodology in nascent markets, and finally, Madhavan's advice for founders and investors focused on new product innovation. Without further ado, here's the interview with Madhavan Ramanujan. Madhavan Ramanujan joins us today from San Francisco. He's a board member and partner at Simon Kutcher and Partners and is one of the world's foremost pricing strategists. Madhavan has managed over 125 projects for companies ranging from unicorn startups to the Fortune 500, many of which he writes about in his recently published book, Monetizing Innovation. He advises companies on several topics, including new product monetization, acquisition and growth, packaging and bundling, and price implementation. Madhavan, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. A pressure, Nick. Awesome. Yeah, I, I remember watching your uh, your first round summit. And ever since that time, I've just been super excited to get you on the show. And I'm, I'm glad we finally made it work. Awesome. Cool. Well, can we start off with the backstory here and sort of what led you to uh, developing your expertise? So my journey with pricing and monetization actually started way back when I was in Stanford. Um, and in classic fashion, you know, we had a team like a three or four people team for a startup. We went and pitched an idea to a VC. And there was this one question that the VC asked me, and I was supposed to be in charge of like the marketing. And I was like the CMO kind of person in the group. He looked at us and said, how do you know you'd monetize on your innovation? I pulled up a spreadsheet with all kinds of assumptions, showed it to him very quickly. He looked at him and he said, you've labeled them right. Those are assumptions. How do you truly know? <laughs> <laughs> And that question really haunted me. I was obsessing over that and luck would have it. And God bless that VC. 
Within one week, I got a call from the managing partner at Simon Kutcher, and he was like, hey, we are looking for people from Stanford, and we are the world's largest monetization strategy consulting firm. And I'm like, who, Simon? Yes. Okay, great. So I kind of <laughs> joined Simon Kutcher to really uh, focus on this specific topic and really get to the bottom of how do companies truly know that they will monetize and not just hope that they would spend the last 10 years at Simon Kutcher. Awesome. So what was the startup and how did that work out? It didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> As many don't. As many don't. And we also benchmarked that about 72% of innovations actually fail. I think we were one of those. If we had done it, it didn't go anywhere. It was a startup, you know, biotech and medtech space, essentially a marketplace to put, you know, pharmaceutical companies in touch with some of the latest innovations happening, you know, small shops. Got it. So I've heard from a number of sort of the top VCs around that you are the monetization guru in the space. Can you talk about some of those firms and investors that you've worked with? Yeah, I mean, we've worked with pretty much numerous uh, you know, VC firms and their portfolio companies. I think we have done a lot of work for you know, portfolio companies of VC firms like Sequoia, Benchmark, NEA, you know, IVP, Thrive, Meritech, Axel, the list goes on, TCV, etc. So I think we've probably encountered many VCs in our work. Great. So you've got a great article sort of that breaks down your philosophy and your approach to, you know, determining what's really important to customers and framing sort of the value conversation around that. So let's start out with uh, missteps. So when you're experiencing innovation and early stage technologies, what's the most common misstep that you see innovators making? Yeah, the most common misstep by far is postponing pricing decisions to the very end, to the point where it's almost an afterthought. So, I mean, there's a lot of energy that is put into like, you know, building the right product, but too less thought on how to actually commercialize it. I think that is the biggest misstep that we see time and again. I mean, we even get a call sometimes saying, hey, oops, we need a price. We are launching the product in the next week kind of thing. <laughs> so I think that's probably by far the biggest misstep. So not thinking about price and not thinking about real value of the product early on prior to R&D? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And just you know, throwing a product against the wall and hoping that it sticks and slapping on a pricing strategy and you know, hope that it'll fly off the shelf. The best companies or the best innovators would have thought about this you know, while they are developing the product so that they can design the product around what customers need, what they value, and ultimately what customers are willing to pay for so they can maximize their chances of success. Yeah, it's like fire, ready, aim. <laughs> I've seen plenty of startups doing this, and I think we've all fallen into the trap. So some of the unintended consequences are these four types of major innovation fails that you've cited. Can you walk us through these four common types of uh, innovation issues? Yeah, absolutely. The first innovation failure type is what we call as feature shock. So these are products that are simply over-engineered, I mean, there's a lot going on, too many features. I mean, if you hear things like, let's just throw this in because our customers don't know what they want, <laughs> you're probably onto a feature shock where you built a product that at the end of the day is just excess. And as a consequence, maybe even the price is high and it does not resonate with any particular customer. And it's just one size fits all, but often that's actually a one size fits none. Yep. Um, that's the first innovation failure category that we see. The second one is what we call as minivation. So these are products where they were the exact product market fit, as in, you know, they were the right product for the right market, but the entrepreneur or the organization did not have the courage to charge the right price. 
so they basically under-monetize compared to the value that they're generating for their customers. That's a mini-vision. We see that a whole lot in technology companies, for instance. Cost plus instead of uh, pricing based on value? Pretty much. I think that's a good summary. The third innovation failure type is what we call as a hidden gem. And these are innovations that you should launch, but it kind of goes against the grain of your company or your DNA, and you don't bring it to market and you don't harness the power of a hidden hidden gem. I think often happens when there's an inflection point, you know, a hardware company trying to do software, software trying to do hardware, offline companies trying to go online, et cetera. That always happens. One of the, uh, you know, hardware companies that we bumped into talking about cost plus, they're like, oh, there's no cost for our software. We should give it away for free because they were totally in a cost plus mindset. (laughs) (laughs) But their customers really bought the product only because of the software. And they would be like, we would buy these products as long as, I mean, it's a no brainer because of the value that software provides. But of course, a lot of monetization potential that's just kind of left on the wayside. The fourth way that we actually see monetizing innovation failures happen is what I call the uh, undead, probably by far my favorite category. So these are products that uh, kind of classic science fiction fashion you should have never launched because they come back to haunt you. Um, <laughs> And they come in two varieties. Either they're the wrong answer to the right question or they're an answer to a question no one cares about. Either way, producing them did not move the needle for anyone. And there was just a failure from the beginning. Yep. Mm -hmm. I've seen plenty of startups doing this. And I've even done this myself, you know, where you think you have the answer for the mass market, but you don't test the assumptions correctly. Yeah. Absolutely. And that goes back to the first question you were asking me in terms of, you know, critical missteps. Because if you keep building a product in isolation of the customer and just, you know, sort of, you know, feeling or knowing or thinking that you know everything and then you sort of launch it in the market, you're just simply hoping and praying for the best. You actually don't know if your product is going to succeed. And time and again, we actually see that as the fundamental reason why some of these innovations fail because the entrepreneur or the innovator did not have a price and value check prior to releasing the product. I love this. Love the methodology. You know, in a former life, four years plus ago, I uh, launched my own product within an, a large organization. And uh, I think we spent a full year on customer development before we, mm-hmm. we started any R&D. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of these concepts really resonate. So I, I want to awesome. dive into... I want to dive into some of those. So um, in order to avoid, you know, the undead and some of these other potential traps, uh, you've talked about three rules for monetizing new products. Um, And those three are having the willingness to pay conversation early, uh, investigating how to charge and not just what to charge, and also not settling for a one size fits all. Um, Can we start out with the willingness to pay conversation? And can you walk us through this point and the key questions that innovators should be asking? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I would boil this down to a very simple rule of thumb. We call it price before product. (laughs) Most people think about product and then price. I mean, price comes before product in the English dictionary and it stops right there for most of us, (laughs) right? (laughs) So price before product, what does that really mean? That is, no, that really means that you're having a conversation with customers on whether they need your product, whether they value your product, and ultimately whether they are willing to pay for the product, you know, before you productize everything and throw it out in the market. That is the secret of building innovations that you know are going to be insanely successful. And as an entrepreneur, as a company, actually, you don't have a choice whether you'll have a pricing conversation with your customers. The only thing that is in your control 
is when you will have it. If you have it early while you're productizing, you can actually design the product around this information and then sort of you know launch it with confidence. If you have it after the fact, you're just hoping for the best. And when we talk about having this willingness to pay conversation, it's really doing a reality check on the innovation to see if there is you know market potential or commercialization. I mean, think of this as like having a sales conversation with your customers or a marketing conversation with your customers, you know, six months or a year before you actually launched your product. And fascinatingly enough, your customers are not even in a negotiation mindset. So they tend to actually give you a lot of objective information. So you're kind of testing and learning to see if people really value what you're building. And if someone says they're not actually going to pay for your innovation, the obvious question to ask is why? And often you would hear so much important you know, details that you can actually design your products or pivot according to some of the feedback that you're actually hearing in the market. And this would save like, you know, building an undead or just under monetizing your own products like innovation, et cetera. So having this conversation early is at the crux of monetizing innovation. I'm with you completely. I've, I've been part of groups before where you sit in a room and everyone's sitting around and you're brainstorming new product ideas and putting post-it mm-hmm. notes up on a wall. And I've also been part of organizations where <laughs> the mantra was problem before product. And it was all about what are the, the main, or sorry, pain before product. Um, yep. So what are the main pain points that customers are feeling and which ones mm-hmm. are they willing to put money against to, to solve? And then let's design the product around that. Yep, absolutely. Cool. So is this essentially, I mean, at its core, is this just a conjoint analysis to see what features customers want and how much they'll pay for those features? Or is it more than that? I think it's actually much more than that. And here's how I would probably characterize it. I think the biggest and the most important thing to do is to have the conversation, <laughs> regardless of you know which methodologies are sort of used. In the very early stages of an innovation, even asking the basic questions of you know pitching your product and then asking people, okay, so what would you pay for it, is actually a reasonable question to ask because you're trying to understand if someone would even pay something for your product and what would that actually be and why is the most important question to ask there. Like, why did you say what you just said? And I think it's you learn a lot of information. So just from a basic conversation to all the way to like something like a conjoint, there are multiple you know methods that you can actually use. When we do work for companies, we typically triangulate based on multiple methodologies, which kind of also factor in the customer psychology and not just a quantitative analysis to actually truly come up with you know what is the right pricing strategy. So like, for instance, while a conjoint analysis could probably tell you, you know, what the trade-offs are between features and price, you probably would not understand, you know, what is the psychological threshold in the market? Is there, for instance, you know, a $29 a kind of threshold that if you cross it, no matter what math you actually do, people would actually think that it's expensive. How do you actually bring all of that together? And we write about this in uh, book Monetizing Innovation in Chapter 4. Essentially, there are four or five different methods, Conjoin being one of them. Got it. And you're asking questions. Once you have a concept, you have a product concept, mm-hmm. you're presenting mm-hmm. that to customers. And then mm-hmm. you're asking questions about sort of the, uh, you know, at what price is this is this product uh, inexpensive, reasonable, expensive, prohibitively? Can, can you talk about what those questions are and how that um, helps you kind of find the best opportunity and the best areas with which to uh, to price the product? Absolutely. 
So think of the situation where, you know, you've kind of built a prototype or you have a wireframe or you have a product concept and you really want to validate, you know, whether there is a market potential for this product. Having those conversations with the expensive, prohibitively expensive kind of questions is a simple and easy way to find out whether at least there is a market potential for what you're really building. And the way this happens is you would pitch your product, talk a lot about the value, you know, what pains are you actually solving? What gains do the customer actually get? And then follow that whole conversation with, okay, so what do you think is an acceptable price for this product or an innovation? Clock that answer and then follow that with, you know, what's an expensive price? And then follow that with what is a prohibitively expensive price. Of course, I mean, asking someone, tell me what the price should be for my product is like a garbage question and there's garbage in and garbage out. (laughs) But ask this way, what really happens behind the scenes is, you know, people love to negotiate with themselves. They love to lowball an answer. So they would probably say something for an acceptable price that is, you know, where where they just not only love your product, but they also love your pricing. (laughs) That's kind of what we have seen. And expensive price tends to be around the price that they would actually pay. They're not really happy, nor are they uh, pissed off, but it's the price that they would pay for the value that your products might actually bring to the table. And then probably expensive tends to be around the price that people would laugh you out of the room, no matter what you do. But having asked this question, at least you get some broad brushstrokes or ranges of like pricing that is probably relevant. And then you can actually productize to the price rather than just price the product. And I think that is where also some of the magic really happens for like successful products. Got it. This this feels reminiscent of the Ben Westendorp methodology. Is is there similarities between this approach and, and that one? Yeah, I think there is similarities for sure. I think the Van Westendorp methodology goes through like four of these questions. And I think in practice, we actually just ask for acceptable and expensive often just to at least get a quick range because asking that question uh, multiple times, you, you tend to get like some noise that is picked up. Got it. And then I want I want to jump into the second rule here. This is uh, mm-hmm. uh, probably the most interesting for me. So this is investigating how to charge and not just what to charge. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the in the tech world, we see a variety of models. We're seeing SaaS models. We're seeing yep. um, you know fee for amount of data. Uh, we're seeing companies like Slack that get above a, a certain threshold, and then they're charging the enterprise for various security and other features. Um, can you talk about this point about sort of this investigation of how to apply a monetization model and not not just a fixed price? Yeah, absolutely. So this is probably the one of the most important rules. How you charge often trumps how much you charge. And what we mean by that is if you take like, for instance, SaaS or tech companies, I think the default temptation is to think about pricing per seat or per user or like some kind of, you know, seat based licenses. Those yep. might work for certain products or categories, but you should ask yourself this question. Is your pricing model truly aligned with the value that you bring to the table? And if not, can you actually come up with a model that aligns with how customers perceive value from the product? Then you can switch to more of a value-based you know, pricing metric. I'll probably give you a non-tech example and then a tech example to make the point. Yeah, right? that would help. Just an easy example to relate to, like Michelin, for instance, when they launched a you know, super innovative tire, this was you know, supposed to actually last 20% longer than like normal tires. And these were like tires that were made for truckers to move goods from point A to point B. I would say that tires are probably one of the most price sensitive markets because there are too many alternates and no one knows what is actually going on, <laughs> right? <laughs> if they had gone and asked for 
for a 20% premium on a per tire basis, there's absolutely no chance they would have actually made that money. Sure. What they actually did was fascinating. They changed their pricing and business model to actually charge based on the per mile that the tire was actually driven. This was a huge hit in the industry because, you know, the tires lasted 20% as they should. Michelin got that money back because of the per mile or the per kilometer. But fundamentally, the truckers actually loved that model because it really aligned with, you know, what they were actually doing. Because now they could pay as they go. They didn't need to like have investment to buy, you know, tires. But the more fundamental reason was they could actually put the tire costs even in an invoice and send it to their customers saying, I got charged for 1,200 miles job by Michelin and here's the charge and they would actually even put it in the invoice item. Fascinating, right? I mean, they could pass wow. through their entire cost. And they could track all of that. Yeah, they could track all of that and something that was actually not even possible before this kind of pricing model was actually invented. Sure. And the whole chain actually benefited from that in some ways and there was a spreading of like, you know, willingness to pay. This worked great. So let's take a tech example that probably is uh, kind of similar. If you take a company like, for instance, uh, Optimizely, right? I mean, it's an A-B testing platform, um, great product. And if you think about how they actually monetize, let's say if they'd monetized based on a per user basis, they would have probably left a lot of money on the table in the sense that in an average company, there are probably three or four people or probably you know a small group of people who are actually doing A-B testing to understand how their products and offerings can be you know better brought to the market. What they actually did was they actually charged based on the monthly visitors that actually come to your website and the pricing is actually scaled and based on that, which is actually quite kind of fascinating because the more visitors that you actually have on your site, you're actually deriving more value from that kind of A-B test for, compared to someone else. So I think that scales more with value rather than just a seed-based pricing. And I think those kind of you know pricing models are really important to consider. Another one which comes to mind, a company called uh, Segment, they had a dramatic increase in their you know top line after they changed their pricing model from like an API-based pricing to more like a monthly visitors, which was more aligned with the value that they were actually bringing to the table to their end customers, right? And thinking about how to actually charge is at the crux of monetizing well, because then you can align your products uh, more closer to value. So Segment was charging based on API calls, and then they moved over to uh, more of a volume-based pricing model? So they used to uh, charge based on an API call and then they moved to a metric that they basically call like a monthly visitors that are tracked. Got it. That's kind of what they did. And that was a uh, pretty dramatic impacts to their top line. Got it. I'm going to geek out for a second, but I'd love your take on this. So yep. the very first product development I ever worked on was a customer had come to our business. It was an engineering company and they needed a way to weigh the mass of mail when it was moving at extremely high speeds. So think of a letter, a snail mail letter that you get in your mailbox. They mm -hmm. needed a way to determine the mass of a letter at very high speeds. They could determine postage. They had optic systems to figure out you know, how many stamps you had on the postage, but they couldn't figure out mass and big mail sorting providers. These things are millions and millions of items of mail moving through at incredibly high speeds. And so they came to us and we used uh, you know, basic physics. So F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration. <laughs> 
Uh, we had a pinch wheel with a motor that was able to fling the mail forward through the mail sorting system, and we could measure the velocity at two points in time to get our acceleration. So when we had the force from the pinch wheel, we had the acceleration we could solve for mass. And we were able to get this highly, highly accurate. It was within 0.0001%, I think, of actual mass. But the biggest problem we had is the customer that came to us couldn't pay for the machine because it was over 100000 bucks of CapEx. So we're trying to get creative. And I suggested, you know, maybe we can structure a deal that we get to share in what they call revenue recovery. So this yep. customer had over $100 million of lost revenue per year in under postage, people that weren't putting you know the correct postage on the mail items. And so instead, we proposed to structure this deal where we would get a percentage of all the revenue that was recovered mm-hmm. based on this new technology. And that's the only way that we actually got it deployed because they couldn't handle the CapEx up front. That's a great example. And I think that's also worked. Those kind of percentage and revenue based models or even aligning on like the actual thing that the product is actually doing is a sure recipe for success. I mean, a parallel example, one of you know the software companies that we work with, which produces like, you know, lab reports, they used to actually price based on like a, you know, blanket, you know, this is the price that we would actually charge. We changed it simply to like pricing based on a per lab report basis, very mm-hmm. simple adjustment. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I mean, customers could now suddenly afford their product, but more importantly, when they actually started seeing the value and they were actually willing to pay for it because, you know, that's exactly why they brought the product. So that's a bit of putting your money where your mouth is. So Yeah. I wish there was all this flexibility to price whichever way you want with big organizations, but sometimes uh, <laughs> there are limitations. Absolutely. So sure. you've pointed out that there's not one size fits all, right? That's kind of the final rule. Can you walk us through your point here and how you can build flexibility and into uh monetization strategy? Absolutely. The rule simply at the heart of it means that there is no market where there are homogenous preferences. And understanding this is critical because then you can build products to like different groups of customers who need things differently, who value things differently, and who are willing to pay for it differently. Right? I mean, even if you think about, you know, water that we actually drink, and a fountain, it's free. In a bottle, it's $2. If you put gas in it, it's $2.50. <laughs> Throw it in a mini bar, it's $5. It's the same it's water, true. right? But it's packaged, productized differently because different customers need value things differently. I mean, some people might want to carry around their water. Some people don't want to go down from a hotel room. They would still take the mini bar, right? Whatever, right? I mean, there are different needs. <laughs> and uh, and there's a simple example to keep in mind that a one-size-fits-all is usually a one-size-fits-none. When you think about it as a one-size-fits-all, people build a product to, quote-unquote, the average customer. But such a customer perhaps, you know, never existed, (laughs) right? I mean, and building products to the right segments is actually fundamental. I mean, many technology companies would build products and then they would try to position that product to like multiple segments. Mm -hmm. But by then, you've lost half the battle because you have the same product and you're just relying on marketing to like spin it as if it were like, you know, different across different groups of customers. But had you realized the needs and wants earlier, then you would productize to that. That's really what we mean by a one-size-fits-none and kind of rule. And even if you take a product like, for instance, an iPhone, there's an option starting from I think 399 all the way to like 999. There's different products. I mean, the iPhone 8 and the iPhone X, the feature differences are perhaps minimal, but they are productized at different price points for a reason, because they're tapping into different people's willingness to actually pay for a phone. And I think it's a classic case of segmentation. 
Interesting. So it sounds like you can mm-hmm. adapt price based on product form factor, application, the segment that you're serving, a variety of factors. Yeah, absolutely. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. So, I mean, this is a bit of a controversial topic in the venture space where, you know, many investors are looking for one business model across all customers. You know, what's your response to VCs on this point? I think having one business model in the early stage is just fine, but that does not mean that you probably just build a one-size-fits-all. I think those are a bit different, right? I mean, you could still have a few versions of your products with the same kind of business or pricing model and keep things simple because when you're starting, you probably want to keep a reasonable amount of price transparency and you want to focus more on like growth. But at some point, it might make sense to actually investigate, you know, different pricing models or different business models for your customers. For instance, what works for an enterprise customer for a technology company or a software company might not actually work for, you know, the mid-market or the SMBs. And can you actually come up with a different pricing model and business model, you know, for those segments? And then can you productize towards that would be a natural question to ask, but doesn't have to be focused from day one, but at some point this is going to become really relevant. Got it. So is it is it a series of testing then based on all these different factors? Do you create concepts and then test them against your target market for each? Yes, that's exactly how we would go about it. So how do you apply your methodology in situations with nascent market, where customers may not fully understand their needs, the problems, or the solutions available? Mm -hmm. I think, funny enough, the principles are quite similar in the sense that you're still having that conversation of trying to see if people will use your products. Do they need it? Do they value it? And would they even pay for it? I mean, we work recently with a number of companies that actually are bringing, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality products to the market. I mean, that's not necessarily a mainstream case right now, but at least there's some level of awareness. I would say it's a nascent market. But the way we kind of went about it was, you know, having that early willingness to pay conversation. People excited about the product. Would they pay for it? You know, what would they pay for it? And, you know, kind of putting them through different situations and trying to see if the product was actually available today, how would they make that choice? And then really tapping into their mental models and rules on how they're making a decision. 
I mean, it's some simple tests. For instance, if you're bringing a product really early in the nascent market and you're having a conversation with customers and in a survey or in a discussion or even in any kind of setting, they might tell you, yeah, I like this product, I would buy it. Ask them if they would actually put down a credit card to pre-order some of this stuff or like would they pre-commit to some of these kind of products and you'll actually truly start hearing some you know relevant information especially in nascent markets to see if people are ready or they're just simply saying that they would actually buy a product and those kind of simple checks could be really useful yeah i'm with you on that i I always felt like it was my responsibility when i was developing products to come up with the solution it was on me to to extract the key problems and the key pain points from customers (laughs) Be curious where you stand on this because I've interacted with a bunch of entrepreneurs that sort of ask their customer base, you know, what solution would you like? And I'm very much against that. I'm much more sort of in the camp where the innovator comes up with the right solution to sort of the customer's problems. Yeah, I think that I have a very clear stance on this. I think the innovator comes up with a product to your point. But I think where I probably differ a bit is once you have an idea or you're coming up with something, start testing the market viability much before you actually launch the product and have that conversation on, you know, would people need value or would they pay for your product much earlier? I think that's the only difference. I mean, it's not like going and asking the market, okay, what should I build tomorrow? That's your job in some ways, right? I mean, it's as an innovator. I mean, you're building a product, but having that conversation, I think where this sometimes becomes tricky is if you're in the mindset that your customers don't know what they want and it's your job to actually make products at the extreme, what that really translates to is keep building a product, keep building a product, redesign it, build it to perfection, slap on a price, throw it in the market and hope that you'll actually succeed. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, and terrible. And then majority of people who tried that have a really bad outcome. I mean, of course, we love to talk about exceptions. We would say, but Steve Jobs didn't do this. We don't talk about the 98% of people who had exactly the opposite outcome. Oh, yeah. The the feature shocks and the undeads and and all the rest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in the book, in chapter two, I think we wanted to name it, you know, you're not Steve Jobs, but the editor thought it was too provocative. So we kept it to why good people get it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, provocative sales. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Maybe for next edition. (laughs) There you go. There you go. So uh, what other key points of advice or insight do you have for startup founders that are creating new products? Yeah, I think test, test and learn and test early. And I think it go beyond just a product market fit and try to achieve, you know, a product market pricing fit. I think that's where the magic happens. I mean, if you go and ask someone, do you need this product? They might still say, you know, they need it. Do you need it at $200? The whole conversation is different. So if you didn't put pricing as part of your product market fit, you're probably often hearing what you want to hear. So I think having that product market fit pricing or product market pricing fit kind of validation early and kind of keep doing it and iterate the product around this kind of information to maximize chances of success. I think that would be, I think, what I would probably tell entrepreneurs. Yeah, I just had a founder, I talked to him yesterday that did a a really nice, robust study on uh, if people were interested and, and would purchase this product, but he didn't give them a price. Ugh, mm-hmm. And I was I was kicking myself on the phone. I'm like, I wish I would have told him to do that, or I wish he would have he would have yep. known. But he didn't attach a price to to the uh, the purchase intent question, right? Like, yeah. how how mm-hmm. likely would it be that you buy, and likely to buy, or definitely would buy? 
and yep. uh, there was no price attached, so it's it's kind of an empty analysis. Absolutely, and this is actually possible even if you're you know kind of working even in a big company. I mean, we write about, for instance, uh, LinkedIn, where they actually sell beta versions, as in the salesperson needs to go and sell beta versions to customers as pilot customers. And if people are not willing to put money, then they don't have skin in the game, and that also gives them a clue on whether there's attraction for the product or not before they fully productize something. Interesting. What about any words of advice or thoughts for uh, people on the investment side that are assessing startups very early on while they're in sort of the product development process? Yeah, a piece of advice would be to really gauge whether there is a monetization and profit potential for startups. I think there's probably an overemphasis sometimes on growth and then, you know, the money would come later. 90% of companies that are landing and expanding are landing, not really expanding, and they're struggling with monetization and profitability. So I think keeping an eye on that and really asking those questions to startups to see if they've done some kind of price validation around the products that they're actually developing, I think would be fundamental. Some of the ones that, you know, we work with put in a lot of focus around this particular aspect. And even when they're making an investment, would truly try to understand what is the pricing power for a startup before you know, making an investment decision. And I think that's an important part, sometimes overlooked, but I think needs to be done systematically. Yeah. Tom Tunguz was on the program and his yeah. comments were very similar. He said, you know, if you're really building something of value, why can't you charge for it from day one? Yep. Yep. Madhavan, just to wrap up here, what topic and or guests should we have here on the program and what would you like to hear them cover? Yeah, I think it would be, uh, I think, good to follow up with a story from an entrepreneur or a you know CEO of a startup who probably made some, uh, you know, had the right focus on having conversations with their customers around willingness to pay and pricing earlier and sort of how they build the product around that kind of information. I think that might be... Uh, fascinating. Um, just kind of hearing the whole entrepreneur side of the whole journey. I think that that might be a good feature. Great. And Madhavan, what is the best way for listeners to connect with you? Yeah, I think the best way is to connect with me uh, is on LinkedIn. Uh, if you can manage to spell my name, <laughs> but, uh, you should <laughs> uh, easily be able, uh, you can easily find me if you Google for words like monetizing innovation or uh, Simon Kutcher, and then uh, there's a way to contact me through the Simon Kutcher uh, you know, website. And you can also follow me on Twitter, MadhavanSF. That's M-A-D-H-A-V-A-N-S-F for San Francisco. Awesome. Well, it's been a big thrill getting a chance to connect with you and uh, look forward to reading the book and uh, connecting when I'm out in SF. Thanks so much, Nick. It was a pleasure. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.